0: SoCal, oh man, you guys doing all right? You having a good day? What's going on? Yeah, I want you to be honest with me. How many of you feel like? uh, I mean, I know it's only Thursday. We still got another full day, but how many of you feel like at this point you for sure have met the person you're going to marry at camp? There's one, two, three. There's three, four of you. All right. There's a couple who. Wait, I have a question. There's a couple who just kind of have their hands half raised, like they don't seem sure. All right. I don't think you need to be too worried about it. I just wondered if it had already happened. Okay, track with me here. Last night, we're talking about the truth of Christ's life, right? We had already talked about the fact that the way that Christ lives, as we see revealed in the Gospel of John, tells us something about who He is tells us something about who God is, right? The scriptures point to that. And then last night in the midst of our teaching and in the midst of our study together, we looked at a bunch of different passages wherein the life of Jesus not only tells us something about him, tells us something about God, but it reflects something about us. It reflects our brokenness. And if you remember where we finished last night, there were these religious people who'd studied, who, who felt very proud of everything they knew, and yet they were frustrated because they felt like Jesus was calling them blind. Remember that? he had healed a man who was born blind, and Jesus said, I came into the world to give sight to the blind. And they said, are you calling us blind? And with sorrow, I think, Jesus looked at them and said, you, you know, if you would just admit that you need help, if you admitted that you were blind, you'd be able to see. But the fact that you insist you can see means that you remain blind. We talked about the fact that the life of Jesus reveals our sin. We talked last night about the fact that sin isn't some big complicated religious word. It's basically us living in contradiction to the reason for which we were created. Remember the story about the we controller. That when we use it, when we use our lives to glorify anything other than God, the Bible calls that sin. And that's not only far less than what we were created for, but ultimately it destroys us. Romans chapter 6 says, the wages of sin is death, right? We talked about being separated from God, not only in this life, but being separated from God forever. So as we come to this next section, and for the record, we're gonna truck through. We're gonna work from John 10 through John 20, which means we're gonna have to move really quickly. But as we come to this next section, I want you to feel the weight of what we need. If we, all of us, are sinners, and when we look at who Jesus is, we realize our own brokenness and the brokenness of our fellow man, what you should be feeling as you, as you realize that is the need for some help, the need for an advocate. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling in your life where somebody came to your defense, right, or somebody came and like, you know, had your back. There's nothing like it, right? I remember when I was in kindergarten, uh, one day uh, my mom picked me up from school just like any other day and she asked me in the car, she goes, hey, uh, how was the day? And I was like, well, it was great, you know. uh, We had recess and we had snack time and we had nap time, we did crafts, we got to go outside teacher told us a story, then we did another craft, and then the teacher slapped me, and then we also had another story. And and my mom's like, wait, what? And I was like, uh, we had two stories today? And she's like, no, did you say the teacher slapped you? And I was like, oh yeah, the teacher slapped me today, it hurt. And she's like, what do you mean the teacher slapped you? And I was like, well, she slapped me because the vacuum was broken. And my mom's like, I don't understand what that means, you're going to have to tell me the story. So I told her the story. Here's basically what happened. Uh, We had done this craft time in our class, and then after the craft... All the kids in the class got different assignments. One kid had to put away the glitter. One kid had to put away the paste. One kid had to put away the scissors, whatever. My job was to put away the vacuum cleaner. And uh, so I went over to the vacuum cleaner, and I tried to put it away, but I couldn't because it was broken. And uh, turns out, here's what the problem was. In my kindergarten classroom, they had an upright vacuum, which is probably like the vacuum you guys have in your house. Uh, When you're going to wind up the cord on an upright vacuum, there's a hook on the back and a hook on the bottom, and you wind the cord around those two hooks. You guys have seen that before, right? But in my house growing up, we didn't have an upright vacuum. We had what was called a canister vacuum, which isn't very common today, but back in the 70s was kind of a thing. Canister vacuum is like a little box on wheels, and it has a hose that comes out of it, and you can kind of take that hose and vacuum things. But the cool thing about the canister vac is that the cord, uh, when you want to put the vacuum away, it has a little rewinding spool. So you just... um, you grab the power cord, and you just kind of give it a little tug. You go, think, dink, and then it just like, it just sucks back inside the thing, just like uh, like the spaghetti on Lady and the Tramp, You know, except not as romantic, right? So you just go, think, dink, and it goes, and it sucks back in there. So in kindergarten, the teacher tells me to put away the vacuum, and uh, so I go over to the vacuum cleaner, and I grab the cord like I'd been taught to do in my house, and I went, think, dink, and nothing happened. And so when the teacher came over to me and is like, why didn't you do what I asked, I said, I tried, but the vacuum's broken. And she's like, Darren, the vacuum is not broken. We just used it to vacuum the floor. Please put it away. And so uh, she left and went to do other things. I tried again. Dink, dink. Nothing happened. And so uh, she comes back a few minutes later, and she says, why haven't you put that vacuum away? And I said, well, I told you already I tried, but it's broken. And she goes, and I told you that it isn't broken, and I'm tired of your backtalk. Do what I asked you to do. So she goes away to do something at her desk, and I, I tried it again, I tried it again, it just was not working, right? I could not get it to rewind, and so uh, she comes over a third time, and she's like, I've asked you twice already to put that vacuum cleaner away, why are you still standing here staring at me, why haven't you done it? And I said, teacher, I told you, it's broken. And she slapped me, as a five year old she slapped me, and she's like, I told you already, it's not broken, and I didn't want any more backtalk, I'll do it myself. And so she wound up. So I told my mom that story, and my mom didn't like that story, of course, but that was kind of the end of it. I went home, I watched cartoons, I did my regular thing. And then um, crazy deal was, the next day at kindergarten, I go to school just like normal. We do the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, we sit down at our desks. And then uh, shortly after the school day started, there's a knock on the door. And me and my friends were all really excited, because we watched Mr. Rogers, and every time there's a knock on the door, somebody cool has come to visit. you know. So the teacher goes over to the door, And she opens it up, you guys aren't going to believe this, it's my mom. My mom has come to my kindergarten classroom, and so I'm like, this is kind of weird. Not only did my mom come to kindergarten, but she brought our vacuum from home. She brought our canister vacuum, right? She's standing at the door to my class, holding our vacuum. My friends are like, is your mom going to vacuum our school? And I was like, I don't know. My mom doesn't say a word to my teacher, she doesn't say a word to me. She just kind of walks through the door. She comes in, she goes over to the teacher's desk, and she sets the vacuum down. She still hasn't said anything. She hasn't even blinked. She's just staring at my teacher. And while she stares at my teacher over the top of the vacuum on my teacher's desk, she slowly starts to pull the cord out of our vacuum from home. And me and my friends are just watching. We don't know what's going to happen, right? She pulls the cord out until it's fully extended. And then she still hasn't blinked. She still hasn't said anything. She's just dead eyeing my teacher. She goes, dink, dink. And he goes, and the cord sucked back in. And then she went, boom, and she slapped my kindergarten teacher across the face. Yeah. And, uh, then, she, uh, then she picked up the vacuum, and she left, right? And that was the end. And we were like, all the kids in my class did the same thing you just did. We were all like, yeah! Felt like the end of Rocky or something, you know? This is like this victorious moment. Now, here's the deal with that story. I am not in any way advocating abuse of educators. I think we should love our teachers and whatever, but... Uh, And, you know, honestly, like in today's day and age, they probably both would be suing each other. I mean, there'd be some lawsuits involved, whatever. But here's what I learned as a kindergarten. I learned in that moment what it felt like to have an advocate. I learned in that moment what it felt like to have somebody come to your rescue, to have somebody defend you, to somebody stand up for you. When we look at the life of Jesus in the chapters we looked at last night, what we see is that our lives compared to his are broken, and that brokenness has resulted in a separation from God, and we can't fix that ourselves because we're broken. We need a rescue. We need a savior, and so as we look at at chapters of John 10 through 20, what we're going to see is this movement of Jesus toward coming to our rescue, and I don't want you to miss it even though we're going fast. In John chapter 10, and here we go, we're going to kind of blitz through, but there's some key things I want you to see. In John chapter 10 is where, you've probably heard this before, but Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd, right? He says, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and they know me. And in the midst of that sort of famous speech in John ten seventeen, Jesus begins to hint at what he will be doing when he gets to Jerusalem. He says this in John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, Because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, and he says, Look, nobody's taking my life from me. I think sometimes when we think about the death of Jesus on the cross, sometimes we get confused. And we think about Jesus as being maybe the victim of a murder, or we think that Jesus was martyred, or that maybe he was tricked, or he was caught off guard. I want you to understand that Jesus, out of his own mouth, says, nobody is killing me. Nobody's taking my life. He says, I have the power to lay my life down and the power to take it up again. So as we move on from John 10, we will see Jesus moving in a direction, and I want you to understand the direction that Jesus is moving in is is a movement toward the cross, Nobody put him on the cross. Nobody forced him to die. Nobody tricked him. In fact, had all the people on earth stood in front of him and tried to keep him off the cross, they couldn't have stopped him because nobody puts the Son of God anywhere. He chose the cross. He's the good shepherd. He laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. That's important. Now, we move on to John chapter 11, and in John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, right? He's friends with Lazarus, and he's friends with Lazarus' sister's. Jesus had gotten word that Lazarus was going to die, and he didn't get back to Lazarus in time to save him. Or at least that's the way his sisters perceive it, right? Jesus waits even after he hears that Lazarus is sick. In John chapter 11, when he finally shows up, Lazarus is already dead. And there's this really interesting exchange in John chapter 11. Uh, In John chapter 11, uh, Martha says in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, and here's what I want you to hear in John 11. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he asked Martha. He goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus comes out of the tomb having been dead for several days, right? The power to make dead things live is the power of Jesus. We move on to John chapter 12. And I know we're moving quick, but for the sake of our time, this is kind of how we got to do it. Key things here. In John chapter 12, We see Jesus finally go back to Jerusalem. This is the last time he will enter Jerusalem before he dies. There's a deal that happens there called the triumphal entry, where the people celebrate the coming of the Messiah. And it's only a few days before many of them will be calling for his death, like we heard about in the video. Jesus comes into Jerusalem in John chapter 12. He ends up, it's kind of interesting, he ends up meeting with some Greek people who want to talk to him. And after he meets with them, and theologians and commentators aren't exactly sure what is signified here, there's lots of different suggestions but after Jesus meets with these, with these Greek ambassadors in John chapter 12, uh, in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What I want you to hear in that, in John chapter 12, is that Jesus has a timeline. He's been on a timeline all along. He has a purpose and a plan. He came to the earth with intentionality, and his intention was to rescue you and I from sin and death. When this Greek group of people comes to meet with Jesus, there's something that switches in his mind, and he recognizes the hour has come. Like, this is the moment we've been waiting for, I'm about to do the thing I came to do. I want you to hear and see his awareness and intentionality in that. In John chapter 13, sort of famously, we see Jesus wash his disciples' feet. And they're confused about that because he's their rabbi. He's their leader. He sets them an example. And he says, this is what it means to be with me. What it means to be with me is to lay yourself down for other people, right? To wash the feet of others. And if you're going to be my disciples, then you also should be washing other people's feet. He washes their feet. He tells them that he's going to be betrayed. He tells Peter that he's going to to deny him. And then also, really interesting in John 13, verse 34, he gives them a new commandment. Jesus says to them in the midst of a longer speech, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, they don't even know yet how greatly he will love them or what that demonstration will look like. At that point, they'd seen him do some miracles. They'd heard him give some great speeches. They'd seen him heal some people. He'd just washed their feet. But he looks at them and he says, I want you to love one another the way I have loved you. And what he's setting up is, I want you to live a life that's willing to lay itself down for the good of other people. That's how you'll be able to identify yourself as a Christian. We don't identify ourselves as Christians with bumper stickers or bracelets or t-shirts from the Christian bookstore. We identify ourselves by the nature of our sacrificial life. Jesus says, live and love like I do. And only later will they understand exactly what he means by that. We move into John chapter 14. And they are understandably troubled because he's just said, hey, one of you is going to deny me. And one of you is going to betray me. It's about to get really rough. He says they're going to strike the shepherd and you guys are going to scatter. But in John chapter 14, he comforts them. He says this in verse 1. It's important for us to hear. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? I love that Thomas is just honest about his doubts. He's honest about his confusion. We've talked before this week about the idea that it's fine to bring your questions. It's fine to bring your, 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 your confusion or sometimes your anxiety, your frustration, your grief. Thomas goes, I hear what you're saying, but we don't know the way to where you're going. And that's where Jesus famously says in John 14:6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He comforts Thomas and the other disciples by saying, you're not looking for a treasure map here, you're not looking for a road map, you don't need to search the scriptures to find out how to have eternal life. The key to eternal life is me, and you know me, I'm the way, I'm the life. And I'm the truth, Jesus says in John 14, 6. John 15, and again, I know we're moving fast. John 15, Jesus encourages us and his disciples to remain in him, to abide in him, to to remain in his love and to remain in his word. Right? He encourages us to continue to have this ongoing abiding in him because, he says in John 16, if you follow me, the world's not going to get it and many of them are going to hate you. Right? It's going to be difficult. But he also says in 16, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit who will be with you all the time. The Holy Spirit will live in you, and he will guide you into all the truth, right? John 16, he says, the Holy Spirit will come. And then in John 17, we have what's called the high priestly prayer. And I don't know whether you know this or not. You probably, maybe you know this. But did you know that you actually are in the Bible? And so am I. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, but he also prays for those who will follow him later. And that includes me. You might not have known this, but I'm one of the characters in the Bible. Jesus prays for me in John 17. He prays for you in John 17. And what he prays there is that just as he and his Father are united, that we will be united, one with one another and one with him and one with the Father, all of us restored to wholeness and oneness, right? Jesus prays for unity, restoration from sin and death, restoration from that brokenness into oneness again. That's John 15 through 17. And then when we come to John chapter 18 is where things really sort of of come off the rails. In John 18, just like Jesus predicted, he is betrayed and he is arrested and he is accused. He undergoes a series of trials. Ultimately, he's put before the people and they give him the opportunity to, to turn him loose and the people reject that. Some of the same people who had welcomed him in Jerusalem a week before are now calling for his death. And Jesus, the king of the universe, God in a body, who lived a perfect life, who did not deserve to die, wasn't murdered, he wasn't tricked, he wasn't um, martyred here. Jesus is killed on the cross. He sacrifices himself on the cross. And if you're thinking about this tonight, maybe this story is new for you, but when we get to John 18 and 19, we see Jesus arrest and his accusation. Remember, in the middle of John 18, by the way, is where he has that interaction with Pilate. And Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, well, you said that. I've come to reveal the truth. And Pilate says, what? What's the truth, right? It's the centerpiece of our theme this week, understanding what the truth is. Jesus came and he died on the cross. Why did he do that? Well, Isaiah tells us that Jesus came and, and that the sin of the world or the brokenness, the iniquity of the world was placed upon Christ. When Jesus went to the cross and died, he didn't go there because he deserved that. He didn't go there because he had earned that. He didn't go there because that was the consequence of his sin. He went there because the Bible teaches that there has to be justice or there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. You and I are all dead and lost in our brokenness and our sin. Jesus went to the cross not because he needed to make that sacrifice, but because we were supposed to die. He died in our place, a substitute. Right? A substitute, a scapegoat. He dies on the cross because I deserve to die on the cross, and so did you. Jesus went to the cross, and he shed his blood, and he was buried dead. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't in a coma. The Romans were really good at making sure the people they wanted dead were dead. In fact, they were the best at that, best on the planet, at making sure their enemies were dead. Jesus is put in the tomb dead, having paid the penalty for our sin, teaches in John 18 and 19, right? Jesus is dead. But in John chapter 20, something crazy happens, right? In John chapter 20, some of Jesus' friends go to the tomb. In Hebrew tradition, right, there's a certain point after the body has been entombed for a little while, there's a certain point where you come and you, and you prepare the body for final rest with spices and, and oils. They go to the tomb, and what that tells us is that even Jesus' closest friends had not yet understood what he had said about laying down his life and taking it up again. They had not understood what he had said about being raised up. They had not understood all the times that he told them that if this temple was destroyed, it would be rebuilt in three days. They go to the tomb to prepare his body for final rest. And when they get there, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. It's what we celebrate on Easter. Jesus died for our sin, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And as a kid, I used to be really confused by Easter. I don't know if any of that happens for you guys, but... It was always confusing for me as a kid because my parents would be like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, you know, so here's like a chocolate egg or whatever. And I was like, I don't really get it. Like, was Jesus riding on a bunny when he came out of the tomb? You know, because if so, like, that had to be a massive bunny. I'd love to see a picture of that or whatever. I always thought it was confusing because they throw this big celebration on Easter, right? It's one of the most important days, if not the most important, like, holy day for Christians. And they throw this big party. But as a kid, I would think, like, you're telling me that Jesus is God And then you guys are making this big fuss over the fact that he rose from the dead. But what's the big deal? Like, if he's God, then rising from the dead just seems like a thing you do. You know, like, if I was God, I'd rise from the dead all the time. Like, I'd get up in the morning and choke on my cereal and die and rise again. And then I'd get on my bike and ride out in the street in front of a car and get killed and rise from the dead. And then later that afternoon, I you know, like, if it were me, like, rising from the dead would be my signature move. You know, like, I'd just be pulling that all the time where people would be like, Oh, great, here comes McWaters. He's going to rise from the dead like we've seen it before, right? I kind of didn't understand why Christians make a big deal about God rising from the dead. That just seems kind of like a thing God's capable of. But I've come to understand later in my life why it is worth throwing a party for that Jesus rises from the dead. You see, when Jesus walks out of that tomb, you guys, he proves beyond any question that he has the power to make dead things live. And what you and I need, more than we need a great teacher, more than we need a great philosopher, more than we need an apologetic argument, more than we need any of those other things, what you and I need more than anything because we're dead in our sin, separated from God, what we need is not a great teacher, we need life. And Jesus walks out of that tomb proving that he has the power to make dead things live. He himself is resurrected. The Bible goes on to say that then by his grace, and what that means is it's not for sale. There is no exchange. Remember when Jesus turns over the tables. We looked at that earlier this week. What does he say to the money changers? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make this a place of exchange. There's nothing to be bought and sold. There's nothing to be traded here, right? By his grace, not only does Jesus rise from the dead himself, but by his grace, undeserved, unearned favor, he extends to us that same resurrection life. It's available to us through faith by his grace, right? says in John 3.16, the most overquoted verse in the Bible, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who believes in him won't perish, but instead will have eternal life. Instead of perishing for your sin or remaining dead in your sin, you can have resurrection life by believing in the gracious gift of the death and resurrection of Jesus. For a long time, that, that verse, John 3.16, was like the one verse I wished I could change. I know that sounds a little bit heretical, but I kind of wish John 3.16 said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever seen a picture of him wouldn't perish, but instead would have eternal life. Because I could, like, you know, draw a picture of the guy with the beard and the blue sash, and then I could just, like, hold it up, right? And, you would know, all be, like, made spiritually alive. Or I wish John 3.16 said, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever heard his name wouldn't perish, but instead would have eternal life. Because I could be, like, hey, Hume, 2022, listen to this. Jesus, you know, everybody be made spiritually alive, right? Everybody'd have resurrection life. But the verse in John three sixteen that everybody loves says, God loves the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who believes in him, not, not just, it's not enough to have seen a picture or come to a Christian camp or heard his name. It's not enough to memorize Bible verses or walk old ladies across the street. It's belief. Why does it have to be belief? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Belief is the one thing that nobody else can do for you. It's not enough to be in a family where your parents believe in Jesus. That won't bring you spiritual life through the grace of Christ. It's not enough to have great youth pastors and leaders who believe their belief is not your belief. You can hang out with people who believe all day long and not believe. I could shout Jesus' name at you and you could hear it, but you might not believe that He is the King of the universe, that He died and rose from the dead. You might not believe that you're broken and lost in your sin, right? Belief is the key, and the reason it's the key is that it's the one thing that only you can do. And I get that that's hard. I get it from my own story, right? Belief was not easy for me. I gave my life to Jesus at 17, but I'd grown up in a Christian home, right? I grew up, my dad was a pastor. Uh, For the first 13 years of my life, my dad was a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. I came home from camp in the summer, in August, when I was 13, between my 7th and 8th grade year. I came home from camp on a on a Friday, and uh, on Monday, that following Monday, my dad, um, before I woke up, took all of my clothes out of my suitcases from camp, and he put his clothes into them, and he left. He left our family. My dad, the pastor of our church, right? He uh, he left my mom and he left my brother and I, and uh, my mom begged him to come back, and she begged him to like make the marriage work, and he he wouldn't have anything to do with that. He uh, let's see, six months later, in February of my eighth grade year, my uh, my dad's divorce came through with my mom on a Monday and on that Friday he married my mom's best friend who he'd been having an affair with. Hold on, hold on. Rather than, rather than doing the thing you just did, when I realized that my dad was a liar and when I realized that my dad was a fake, here's what happened in my heart. I didn't make a noise but what I thought in my mind and in my heart is everything I know about God I learned from that guy. And when I picture Jesus, I picture that guy, right? When I think about what God must be like, I think about things he taught me. And if that guy's a liar and a fake, you know what? I think I'm done with Christianity, right? And so as a 13-year-old, I, I was like, I'm done with it. Christianity seems like a fraud. It seems stupid. It feels like it's full of fakers and liars, right? The pastor of the church, the guy who, who marries other people, the guy who does all the marital counseling, right? The guy who tells other people how to be good husbands and fathers, that guy cheated on his wife with her best friend. So you know what? I think I'm done with Christianity. It all seems like a sham to me. And so as an eighth grader, I, I was a pretty angry kid, and I, and I kind of got more and more angry, not just angry about life, but really specifically angry at religious people, people who blindly, I felt like, believed this stuff about Jesus, which was clearly not true. But then uh, between my junior and senior year of uh, of, of high school, 17, and uh, I, you guys, I wasn't going to church or any of that, but my, I had this girl at, uh, at a school, and uh, she goes, this, uh, to be fair, she was kind of a cute girl, and she goes, uh, hey, Darren, she goes, are you going to go to church camp? And I was like, no. She goes. Oh, I was really hoping you were going to go to that. And I was like, Yeah, I think I am going to go to that church camp, you know. And uh, so, so I went. And uh, it's one. I was one of those kids that like The, the church gave me like a scholarship because they thought I was like a problem child or whatever. So they uh, they paid my way to go to church camp. And you guys, I'm now I'm at this camp with all these people that believe all this stuff that I don't like. But this cute girl is there and. On the first day, uh, she goes, Hey, Darren, are you going to go to early morning prayer and share? I think, you know, we do that sometimes around here too, like early morning singing or whatever. And uh, she goes, You're going to go to early morning prayer and share? And I was like, No. And she goes, Oh, I was really hoping you're going to go. And I'm like, Yeah, I'm going to that early morning prayer and share. And uh, so I'm sitting next to her every day. And uh, no joke, on the Thursday of camp, just like this, the Thursday morning at early morning prayer and share, when it's all done, the youth pastor, he goes, uh, He goes, hey, you guys are dismissed to go to breakfast. He goes, but Darren, would you just stick behind for a second? So I stayed. And I was used to being in trouble for other things. I was not a nice kid at that point in my life. But I hadn't done anything wrong at camp. And I was like, what? And he goes, hey, man, we got one more day of camp. And he said, I just wanted to ask you, if you don't mind. He's like, would you please not come to early morning prayer and chair tomorrow? And you guys, here's the thing, I didn't want to go to early morning prayer and share anyway, but you know when somebody tells you you can't do a thing, then all of a sudden you want to do it, right? So he's like, please don't come, and I was like, why? I love it, you know? And he goes, uh, "He goes. here's the deal, he goes, I know you're just coming to sit next to Shelly, and he goes, I, uh, he's like, I, he goes, I've been doing youth ministry for a long time, and he says, and all the time I've been doing it, he goes, you are the stupidest kid I've ever worked with. And this isn't great youth ministry, by the way, but, uh, he says, uh, he says, you're the stupidest kid I've ever worked with. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You can't call me stupid. And he goes, no, no, hear me out. He says, uh, he's like, Darren, I, I get what's going on with you. He's like, you've got all this anger and all this bitterness and all this frustration towards God because of some things that your dad did. And he's like, the problem with that in my perspective is that as frustrated as you are with God because of things your dad did, dude, he goes, you are just like your dad. And, and you, yeah, that time, like, so I just remember you guys like, I just remember like my fists clenching and the veins coming out in my neck and I got my chest up in that guy's chest and I was like, dude, you can say some stupid bleepity bleep stuff to me, right? But don't, don't you say I'm like my dad because I would rather be dead than be like him and I will never be like him. And he goes, no, 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 understand. He goes, he, he says, what'd your dad do? He, he, he cheated on your mom. And she only ever loved him, and she was only ever there for him, and she was was willing to make it work, and go to counseling, and do all those things, and and he cheated on her. He betrayed her. He ran around behind her back. And he goes, but Darren, he goes, the reality is that God has never been anything but faithful to you, just like your mom was to your dad. God has loved you, and he's been there for you, even when you turned your back on him, even when you got angry with him, even when when you turned away. God was still faithful. And he goes, you cheat on God every day of your life. And yeah, for sure. He goes, I get that you're in high school. You haven't cheated on your wife yet. But you're already a cheater in your relationship with God. And it's only a matter of time before you're a cheater in other places in your life. And I I can't even necessarily explain it. But all of a sudden, what I realized, it it was like he'd hit me with a board. But what came over me was this realization that my dad was broken. And that I was broken. And that every other human being I'd ever met or would ever meet was going to be broken. And that the only place I was ever going to find an advocate, the only other place I was ever going to find real faithfulness that wasn't based on whether I was good or bad, but was based on his character and the truth of who he was, is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I fell down on my knees in this little chapel at a camp in Arizona, and I said to Jesus, Jesus, I'm busted. Will you save me? I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm not going to make a 10-year plan. My life's yours. That's it. And that's still how I live today. I've been living that way for, gosh, 31 years, right? Just where God wants me to go, I'll go. But, but here's why I'm sharing that story with you. John 3.16 says, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who believes in him won't perish, but instead would have eternal life. I would guess that there are some of you who are having a hard time with believing Believing in your own brokenness, believing that you need a Savior, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, believing in the truth of the Bible, believing in the truth of God. And part of the reason why you may be struggling with believing that is that you've looked at people and you've been hurt by people. Sometimes you've been hurt by people in the name of God. We've seen historically that Christians have done horrible things in their brokenness, sometimes in the name of God. And you may have looked at some of that. And you may have said, if that's what God is like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. So I want to say to you what was said to me when I was 17. God has only ever loved you. God has only ever been faithful to you. And you've run around behind his back. You've got your brokenness just like I do. But God is not going anywhere. He loves you and he is with you and he will not leave you or forsake you. He is a good shepherd who gives up his life for the sheep. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down, and he did that in order to glorify the Father by rescuing you and I. The only place, the only place in this life that you will ever find love and faithfulness that you can trust exhaustively is in the person of Jesus. And so tonight, I invite you. I invite you to look within your own life and ask yourself, do you believe? Because that's the key. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that he's the king of the universe and that he loves you, that he died for you, and that he offers you as a gift that same resurrection life? Because if you believe that, the Bible teaches that you are made new, that you were made new, that you will go into eternity fixed in that resurrected position forever and ever and ever. And sometimes sometimes people say it like this. They'll go, oh, you know, like I've heard old-timey people. They're like, young people, what you need to do? is you need to ask Jesus into your life, ask ask him into your life, and I get what they're trying to say, but um, when we talk about asking Jesus into our lives, a lot of times what that sounds to me like is like dodgeball tryouts, you know, where you're picking teams or whatever, and it's like Jesus and Buddha and Mohammed and Joseph Smith and all these guys lined up, and they're all like, oh, I really hope Darren picks me into his heart, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to pick Jesus, and he's like, yay, it's the wrong picture, What I'm I'm not suggesting to you tonight is that you pick Jesus out of a lineup. What I'm suggesting to you tonight is that you come to the awareness and realization that long before you ever had the ability to pick him, he chose you. He picked you. Maybe he brought you to this camp on purpose, and maybe you only came here because a cute girl invited you. But he knows you, and he loves you. He knew me, and he loved me, and he knew exactly what it was going to take to bust through. And so my invitation to you tonight is, will you trust Jesus to love you like nobody else can and to give you life like nobody else can? Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, uh, mostly so you can get alone. I know that sounds weird, but in a room with 300 people, there's so many distractions, right? And so for one second, I don't want you to mess with the people next to you. Please don't talk to anybody else. Please just try and get alone. In a room with 300 people, try and get alone, right? And in that quiet place where it's just you and your heart i want you to ask yourself the most important question that a human being ever asks herself or himself and it's this do i believe in jesus have i trusted in jesus to rescue me from sin and death and that's a yes or no question it's a it's a binary thing it's a one or a zero you either have or you haven't have you put your faith in christ and if you're here tonight and you would say Darren i've never put my faith in jesus but i want to do that guess what i remember i remember exactly what that feels like and I don't know all of your names. I haven't even met all of you yet, but I would love to pray for you as a person who gets it, right? And so with everybody else's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed, if you're here in the room and you would, you would trust me, it's a moment of vulnerability, if you would trust me in this moment and just look up at me, if, if that's you, if you'd say, Darren, I've never put my faith in Christ, but I believe in him. I want him, to, I want him to transform me. Would you just catch my eye? As soon as you catch my eye, you can look back down, but I wanna lock eyes with you and pray for you Just as a way to sort of be in the moment together, right? Can we do that? Thanks. Thank you. Look right here at me if that's you. Thanks. And I'm just going to kind of work my way through, and I'm going to pray for your faces. Thanks, you guys. And as soon as we lock eyes, then you can look back down. Thanks. I appreciate your honesty for trusting me with that. Thank you. Thanks, dude. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you. See, Darren, I've never put my faith in Christ. But I want to do that. Who else? Thanks. Back in the back. Right there. I see you. Thank you. Thanks. God, you know these. You know their names. I wish I knew all their names, but I'm praying for their faces as I go. If you're on this side and you're looking at me and I can't see you because I got bright lights in my eyes, would you give me a quick wave if that's you? Thanks, man. In the back. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks, you guys. You and you and you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Thanks, dude. Have it over here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. It's right here together. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for trusting me. Some of you I have met and have talked to. You. That's a blessing. Thanks. Thanks. Back here, I see you guys. Here, thank you. Who else? Right here. Thanks, dude. If you're on this side and I haven't seen you but you're looking at me, would you give me a quick wave? Okay. All right, anybody else? Thanks, man. Okay, I want everybody to look at me and I'm going to say I'm going to say just a couple of closing things and we're going to sing together and then we're going to have a time to really respond a- after we sing. But here are the two things I want to say. The first one is this. Jesus himself says, that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. Listen to what I'm telling you. What that means is that for those of you who just looked up here and caught my eye, that is, that is tangible evidence, according to Christ, that God is already drawing you to his Son. You could not look up a- and acknowledge your need for a Savior without God already doing a miraculous work in your heart. So follow that, right? Follow what the Spirit of God is doing in you. The second thing I want to say is this. There are some of you who didn't look up here at me tonight, and on one hand, that might be people who've already put their faith in Christ. Praise God for that. There might be others of you who aren't ready for that, right? You've got you still got questions, or you're still not sure, or you're still angry, or sad, or whatever. There are a whole bunch of reasons why you might not have looked up at me, or you might not be ready to trust Jesus. Here's what I want to say to you. You don't have to put your faith in Jesus on a Thursday night at Hume SoCal, right? You put your faith in Jesus At a Wendy's, you can put your faith in Jesus in the parking lot at Chuck E. Cheese. Give your faith to Jesus at the bank. I don't care where you are. I don't care when it happens. It doesn't have to be tonight. It doesn't have to be later. But it can be any of those places. There isn't anything mystical or holy about our, our tent or this moment. There is a moment here where God is moving in the hearts of some. But if you're not at a place yet where you're ready to put your faith in Christ, here's what I don't want. I don't want you to walk out of here being like, well, I missed it. I guess that's it for me. That isn't how Jesus works. He loves you, and he's following you, and he's with you, and he will care about you. And and I'm praying that if you're not ready to put your faith in Jesus tonight, my prayer is just that you put your faith in Jesus sometime, right? Does that make sense? So we're going to sing together and respond through music to what God is doing among us. And then afterwards, we're going to give you some instructions for a way for us to really respond together with with our leaders and in our groups. So uh, that'll come in just a second. But right now... Why don't you stand to your feet and let's sing about this Jesus together.